Welcome to Hit The Six. It's another week and it's another weekend without cricket. I think I worked out that this would be the seventh weekend of club cricket. So the seventh fixture on, on my calendar, but sadly no cricket. County cricket would have been in full swing, but at least we've got this podcast to keep us going. Uh, but I, I was talking to Michael earlier and I think potentially the thing I've been missing most is the dulcet tones of our guest this morning. We're very lucky to have him, very grateful for him coming on. Uh, Mr. Mike Atherton, former England cricket captain, Sky Sports pundit, Times cricket correspondent. How are you, Mike? Uh, how have you been finding lockdown? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, it, I mean, it's been a very curious uh, period for everybody. Uh, myself, no different, just trying to... Actually, I've been quite busy, I say, trying to pass time, but. Uh, even though there's been no live cricket to either broadcast or report upon, newspapers still have to be put out. Um, Sky have been very proactive with watch-alongs and podcasts and vodcasts. So I've been quite busy, which was which has been good. I, I'm the kind of person who likes to stay busy and feel vaguely useful. Um, so that's all fine. And, and health-wise, my family's been fine. Nobody's been affected by the virus. So um, I can't complain. No, we're similar, really, aren't we, Michael? You know, both still got jobs, they're still busy, healthy. So it's certainly been a lot tougher for, for many than us, which we're very grateful for. Um, do, you, do you still play cricket at all? Or are you yeah, no, no longer playing? So you haven't been missing that side of it? I don't play regularly. I might play one charity game a year or a couple of charity games a year. There's one in Oxford that I play in, usually that raises money for the wellbeing charity. Um, I'm sometimes although these days my son tells me I can't throw quickly enough with the sidearm in the last couple of years because I've got a 17 18 year old who's quite a good player I'd, I'd be requisitioned into bowling at him or throwing at him in the nets but he tells me I'm, I'm no longer capable of throwing quickly enough so I don't even get that now <laughs> so, so the, the brief answer is no well, I, I can actually speak from personal experience that I know your son is very good because I played against him last year for the MCC, where he scored oh, right. a fantastic... Played up at Albans, did you? Yeah, I did. And I, I didn't have a good season last year, and it's safe to say I wasn't bowling particularly well. And I bowled a very loopy half volley, effectively a throwdown for him, which he crunched back at me and hit me flush on the foot. Which <laughs> That was me out of the game, so I had to... Well, he, he got a few that day. I, I wasn't there, but I know Tim Lamb's lad, Nick, I think captain the side that day, didn't he? Yeah, and I mean, I, it, was a, it was a really fantastic innings. I actually watched most of it from, from the pavilion because I was incapacitated by this um, straight drive that he hit right back at me. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was a great innings, I have to say. It was... what, one of the things that's missed this year, loads of things are, are being missed, but... I think the MCC usually have a day at the, the Lord's Test where they invite uh, schoolboys who've scored 100 against them to come for the day and, you know, enjoy a day's cricket. So that's not happening. He's missed, missed out on that. But there we go. Yeah, there, there we go. I'm sure we'll have it next year and, and very much deserved. Um, but anyway, the main reason we've got you on is to review uh, our England 11 of the last 20 years. We've had a load of podcasts over the last six, seven episodes and we've picked from opening batsmen to the bowling attack, uh, our best England Test eleven from basically our living memories, which is 2000 really through to 2020. Um, so, so Michael, how are we going to talk through it and how's Mike going to be reviewing it? So I think our thinking was that um, we do it in three chunks. We introduce the batsmen in the top five. We then talk about the engine room, our all-rounder wicketkeeper, and then we go into the bowling attack. 
and we just um, we briefly explain why we picked who we did. Some of them are pretty no-brainers, you know, obvious choices, and there's a couple of wild cards in there. And then, yeah, it'd be really great to hear, Mike, what you think. Tell us where we've gone wrong. And maybe if you could help us pick a coach and a 12th man, that'd be brilliant. Um, can I start by asking a question of you, of you both? I noticed in your team that you didn't uh, have a captain down. So I just wondered on, on, on the first point, whether you pick this team the Australian way or the English way. The Australian way is to pick your best 11 and then find a captain. And the English way is to basically pick a captain or have the captain and then pick a team around him. And I just wondered which way you went because I don't see a, a nominated captain in that team, although I can take a pretty good guess at who it is. So I think picking this team, picking all of England's best talent from the last 20 years, there's a few characters in that who maybe might not have got on the best in their careers. And, there's a, and you know, there's a few firebrands in there. And so I think we were thinking that we needed to pick a captain who could handle that. So, I, um, so it was my mistake. I didn't include on the team list I sent you, but Michael Vaughan, you might have guessed, is our captain. And we were hoping that he could get the best out of, the, out of our team and make all the different personalities gel together. Is there anything else you'd say, Rob? Um, yeah, it was, I, I was probably more in my mind start the Australian way because I was... I think Michael Vaughan got selected by Michael and the other guests we had on at the time because at number three, because they felt, oh, we'd be a good captain as well. So I, I was pushing hard for, for interestingly, Mark Butcher, um, who obviously wouldn't be the captain, but I wanted to let's pick a team and then we can work out whether it be Cook as captain or, or someone else later. But I, I definitely think when we were discussing who, who would fill in at number three, Vaughan's captaincy credentials definitely played a, a part in his selection. So I think that's why, why we went for him in, in the end. It's it's a common theme as well, actually, Rob being outvoted um, in different <laughs> selections. <laughs> um, as captain often. <laughs> so, should we, um, should we get started then? So, I'll, I'll start by going through our top five. So, our top five was Alistair Cook, Marcus Truscovic, Michael Vaughan as captain, Kevin Peterson and Joe Root. And just quickly for our reasoning behind it, Alistair Cook was a bit of a no-brainer for us. He's one of our favourite players arguably England's, one of England's greatest ever test batsmen. He had to be in there. And then Shkropik, the tricky one for that was him or Strauss for us because Strauss and Cook, obviously that wonderful partnership going for many years. But I think the reason Shkropik just edged it was he wanted his extra bit of aggression before him and Cook made the perfect opening pen. Should we get started just having a look at those two then? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the England historically have been very blessed with opening batsmen. You can... You know, good back down a long list of, of great openers. It's been one of England's strengths over the years. But actually, funnily enough, since Andrew Strauss retired, um, it's been a bit of a struggle. So we're not blessed with options, I wouldn't say, in, in the last 20 years necessarily. Cook is a no-brainer. And then, as you rightly say, you've got the choice between Strauss and Trescothic. Um, I myself might have gone for Strauss, um, but I, I'd happily take Marcus there because he's a fantastic player. Strauss would have given you a captaincy option and the delicious opportunity to have Strauss captaining Peterson again, which <laughs> would have been a lovely thing to see. Um, but much of a muchness, both very good players. Strauss, an underrated player, I think. Tough, good slip fielder, top class captain, possibly the best captain England have had in that time. Um, so I might have shaded Strauss, but I have no arguments against Trescothic, who was a wonderful batsman. No, OK, that's interesting to hear. And you're right, it would have been a bit of a delicious prospect to watch Strauss and KP be united in that way. On, on that, 
On that note, would, would you have thought maybe of picking yourself? You crept into the 2000s, into our time frame. Well, I crept in, but by, by the time uh, the 2000s came, I wouldn't say I was necessarily at my best, although I had a pretty good, pretty good summer against West Indies and then in Pakistan. But basically, I, I'm assuming that you, I would think of myself as a more 1990s cricketer uh, than a cricketer of the 2000s. So um, I think you can't look beyond your three choices there. Cook, Strauss, Trescothic, uh, Cook as the no-brainer, and then spin a coin between Trescothic and Strauss. When, um, when chatting to my dad before doing this, I did say to him, I'm a bit worried. I mean, I'm incredibly excited for Mike to come on, really buzzing about it, but slightly worried that we haven't picked him because, <laughs> you know, you've come on to review our team of the 2000s and you, as you said, you did play in the 2000s and you had a, had a, good, had a good series, but he was, he was pretty I, I, sure you'd be fine with it. I don't take offence. Um, and as I say, since Strauss has retired, I mean... One of the narratives of punditry and journalism over the last few years is, is talking about the struggle to find an opening partner for Alistair Cook. I don't know how many went through after Strauss's retirement, probably a dozen or so. And, and you know, you can think of all manner of people that were given an option. But A, it, it just shows how tricky the conditions have been in the last few years, I think, when a combination of pitches, floodlights, all, all kinds of things. The Duke's ball, a crop of good mm. fast bowlers made it, has made it particularly tough for opening batsmen in the last two or three years. Um, and also that it is a, a tough place to, to bat. And, uh, and, you know, in that sense, we should feel lucky in the heritage and, and the, the lineage of, of, of great opening batsmen that we've had down the years. It is not an easy place to play, as the number of Cook's opening partners in the last yeah. few years have demonstrated. Would you, do you think there's anything to the idea? Because when we were trying to, we, when we were picking this team, the discussion around picking Alistair Cook or not was obviously a pretty quick one. But we had to drag it out because we, we want to make a podcast episode out of it. And we were trying to think of any, the reasons why there's been so many partners for Cook. Do you think there's anything to the theory that it's difficult for someone to come in when there's an absolute living legend at the other end? Who um, I don't think so. Because A, I know Alistair Cook reasonably. He's a, he's a pretty... A humble, down-to-earth guy, even though he's mm. got this fabulous, fabulous record. He's not a kind of domineering character who's going to make uh, his opening partner feel belittled or, you know, whatever, a bit overawed. It's not that type of, of person. Um, so I don't really think there is anything to that. I mean, I had it a bit myself. I'm not putting myself in, in Cook's category at all, but, you know, I went through a dozen opening partners as, as well, partly because we were, were never quite sure about where Stewie's best position was. And, and when Alec didn't open, we, we motored through a lot of opening partners for myself. And, you know, I would struggle to believe that, that argument as well. Batting isn't a very individual thing. Opening the batting is, is a tough place to be. And it's just, you know, it's not suited to everyone. And doing it time and time again, as Cook did for 150 test matches, you've got to be pretty pretty strong mentally to do that up the top of the order. So I think the, the failure or the struggle to find an opening partner for him just reflects on the difficulty of the job rather than anything anything to do with Cook himself. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really useful insight for someone who's been there and done it at the very top level for so long. Yeah, completely um, amusing given I think the highest I've ever batted in the competitive fixture is number nine. Me well, no, me Rob, me and you opened together once. 
Yeah, we did on that in a Sunday game, and we were both out within two overs. So maybe we'll have <laughs> that place to pick apart by the likes of Keaton Jennings, Ben Duckett, um, Hassi Hamid, whatever. It didn't quite work out for them. Yeah. Um, should we move on to number three? This one's a really interesting one, I think, because um, there's a lot of debate going back and forth. Mark Butcher missed out by a hair. We've gone for Vaughan. We've gone for him as captain. There's obviously a few other contenders. Trot was also a main one. What do you make of that then, Mike? Yeah, I had a quick look and thought uh, Vaughan, Bell or Trot um, as the possible options there. Different players, clearly Vaughan and, and Trot. Um, Trot, very solid, very successful number three at his best. And Vaughan, a bit... Um, I think Vaughan at his best in that series, which series was it? The Ashes series of 2002-03, possibly? When he, he carried all before him in Australia. I think if you're looking at these players at their absolute best, then you, I think I would agree with you and I would go for Vaughan there. Also because it depends what kind of team you want, of course, but ideally, given the strength of the team, what you want at number three is somebody who has the ability to to really uh, counter-attack and take it to the opposition, which probably Vaughan, as I say, at his best, could do uh, a little better than, than Trot, Ian Bell, fine player, underrated player, I don't know, 25 test hundreds or something, and nobody ever talks about Ian Bell. So uh, <laughs> he's a terrific player as well. Um, but I agreed with you. I probably went for Vaughan, just judging these players at their absolute best. I think um, a big thing for us as well with Vaughan, that slightly tipped it was he was making his runs against you know the world's absolute best bowlers in a very strong period for bowling whereas we felt Jonathan Trott who has a fantastic record maybe the standard of international bowling at the time wasn't quite as high as when Vaughan was at his peak that I'm not sure if that's a fair comment but that's kind of what we were thinking um, yeah that may be true it's very difficult of course because Trott can only play against the you know the bowlers that, that that's up against him uh, and I thought he was a a high-class player, an underrated player in many ways at his best until the end, obviously, when when um, it became difficult. But I, I thought in 2002-03, Vaughan played so brilliantly. Some of those hundreds down down under, where even somebody like Glenn McGrath really struggled to bowl at him. He just kept pulling him off mm. the kind of length that McGrath had, had dominated batsmen over the years. He really was a wonderful player for a short period of time then. I think he was at his best only for a short period of time. And then a combination of factors, knee injury, other things as well. But I think if you're looking at these players at their absolute best, it would be hard to argue against Michael, I think. And he obviously, you know, the captaincy in, in the 2005 series and around that time when he built that great team on the back of some good work from NASA and others, but his captaincy throughout that very tense summer of 2005 was fantastic. Um, you know, it's a, it's a debate whether Strauss, if, if you'd have had Strauss in the team, who, who, who should be given the armband? Because I think Strauss's record is, is wonderful as well. But given that you've not got Strauss in there, Vaughan's captaincy in and around 2005 gives him the edge. Perfect. Thank you. No mention of uh, Mark Butcher, Rob. Well, I played. I think I think a, a butch, a little bit more of a 1990s player as well. I know he played after me in the early 2000s, and he was a, a terrific player. I mean, that hundred he got at Headingley against Australia in 2001 
was one of the best handful of, of innings that I've seen, I think, from a yeah. batsman. Well, and that's the very point. So part of it, obviously, is kind of our memories, our experiences of following England over this period of time. And the first hundred I ever remember someone scoring for England was that hundred at Headingley. So I've always kind of felt, yeah, that for me, just one of my favourite ever cricketing moments, very, very young. And so I've always kind of had a, an emotional tie to Mark Butcher. I've, all, I've always liked him. I'm from sort of South London. He's always been one of my favourite players. And so this... I think he's the top player. He's a, he's a brilliant bloke. Um, would certainly bring a musical flair to the team in the dressing room once you've won this game with this fabulous team. But Butch on guitar would, would lead the celebration <laughs> long into the night. So I certainly wouldn't be against Mark Butcher batting there. But I think at their best, probably Vaughan Sneaks. So did he used to crack out the guitar when he was playing? Because obviously he's got this band now that, you know, he occasionally sings at the end of Sky Sports coverage, that kind of thing. But was it something he'd enjoy doing when he played with him? Break into song after, after a good win? I, I can't really remember it. I remember after that uh, particular hundred that you mentioned, because I was playing in that game, and we had to drive to the Oval that night uh, because I think it must have been a back-to-back -back test or something. Um, but I, I remember the celebrations once we got to London were quite extensive. But I don't remember him getting his guitar. I was a wonderful singer-songwriter now. I think he's just released a, another album and possibly with his daughter as well. But he's one of those players who had a broader kind of range of interests. He was a, quite a broad reader, uh, loved his music. Um, you could always have an intelligent uh, and wide-ranging conversation with Butch. Um, Brilliant to bat with, very relaxed character out in the middle, you know, not not tense or uptight. So you can see why, you know, why the success came to him as it did. He, he was a pretty relaxed guy. Mm. Should, we, um, should we move on to the next one? The next one is an obvious choice, but yet because of who he is, it's always a controversial one. Um, but probably not for the picking of this team. Kevin Peterson. Um, I mean... There's not much I can say about him that hasn't already been said. He's a wonderful batsman, arguably one of the most talented English test batsmen ever. Um, and we've put him in at four because we thought perfect position for him. What do you think, Mike? Well, there's no uh, question about the next two, Peterson and Root. The only issue perhaps worth discussion is which way around you have them because Root has spent most of his time at number four. And I mm -hmm. think I'd be right in saying most of Peterson's success came at number five. Uh, for England so I'd probably go with them the other way around Root at four Peterson at five um, but I think I've said before those two are amongst the best four or five England batsmen that I've seen in my lifetime so I'm going back a little bit further than you two I'm going back to kind of the 1990s and 80s and, and even late 70s um, but I'd put Peterson, Root, Gooch and Gower mm -hmm. you know, amongst the best uh, England cricketers, England batsmen that I've seen. So I'd have absolutely no question about Peterson and Root. I'd probably just have them the other way around. I think our rationale for putting Joe Root at five was when we were looking at his batting averages per position. It's best at six by country marble. Not having Joe Root at six in this team, he's got to be a bit up the order. But um, it's even better at five than it is at four. And I think we just... That may be true. I'd, 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 I'd not really looked at the statistics, but I'd, I'd imagine there'd be a smaller sample size at five and yeah. six and a much broader uh, sample size at four. And my, imp again, I, I haven't looked at the stats, but my impression, thinking back and, and memories of watching Peterson is that 
He'd be a wonderful player at four or five. It doesn't matter. He's a fine player. But I just uh, have a have a kind of memory of him uh, being slightly better at five. But yeah. I'm not, you know, it, it's really as much of a muchness. Root, of course, was a an opening batsman by trade and inclination and by upbringing. So if by some bizarre reason you happen to find yourself non for two in this team, um, you might fancy Joe Root coming in. Uh, yeah, it's true. He's very used to bailing England out of difficult <laughs> situations, isn't he? <laughs> well, they're both. I mean, they're both top-class players. Um, no question. Peterson's probably played four or five of the best innings. I, I put it to Martin Crow once. I said he's a great player. He said he's a player who plays great innings, and that was his distinction. And then you can think of many of them: 158 at the Oval. Mm. 100 in Mumbai, 100 in Colombo, that 149 at Headingley against South Africa. Um, you can rattle off a load of innings that really stand out from Kevin Peterson. So, Peterson, Root, Root, Peterson, take your pick, but both have got to be in there. I think our, there was actually a little bit of debate over Root in that this is where Ian Bell came in. because We were trying to work out whether we could get Ian Bell in this top five, because like you said, he's a quality player. You, um, the one you've not mentioned is Graham Thorpe, who... Mm. Now, you probably think of as more of a 1990s player, but was playing right up to that 2005 uh, Ashes series. So halfway through the decade, was a wonderful player, gives you a left-hander, you know, high-class player, very underrated player. Well, interestingly on Thorpe, he was actually dismissed by uh, Michael's dad, David, because (laughs) when he... um, Who was it he left high and dry? Alex, Alex Tudor. Alex Tudor. When he left Alex Tudor high and dry, uh, and um, David thought that was the most shameful thing he's ever seen an England player do, and for that reason alone, he was not allowed to be selected. So he was dismissed quite quite quickly because of that. Well, no, actually, no. Dad made the case for him. He said you should consider Graham Fort because he's you know wonderful player, great average, he's a real fighter. He had something different to the team, and then he just ended the discussion by <laughs> bringing up the Alex Tudor night watchman incident. And I'll be honest. That was a game that I played in. I'd gone in the back at that point, which was the summer of 99, was it, I think? Um, I'd gone in the back, so I missed the first couple of test matches of that New Zealand series after the World Cup, uh, which I think is the match that you're talking about when Alex Tudor was left on 98 or 99. Thought was a fine player, really fine player. No, he definitely was. I think think it was partly, partly my dad's intervention, but also... Like you said, he's slightly more in our heads as a 90s player than 2000s player. And that probably biased us against him a little bit. Um, and I think Ian Bell, we chose Joe Root over Ian Bell because what was the stat you had, Rob, about Joe Root top scoring in an innings more than any other player? What was I mean, it? What, yeah, in the highest percentage of times he's been top scorer in an innings. And it's kind of Brian Lara's at the top. And then it's it's basically him and Sonal Gavaskar. They're the top three and their stats are quite noticeable. And so you think Root is performed time and time again under duress really with a top order falling around him an unreliable middle order and so it was a combination of those things really where we felt yeah go on I, mean, you, I, don't, I don't think you can look beyond Peterson and Root for myself um, mm. as good a player as Ian Bell and Graham Thorpe were yeah but back to that kind of the whole picking players maybe or discounting players who are more 90s players obviously the one place we haven't done that is with the wicketkeeper so we went for Alex Stewart Partly because we were, I mean, Matt Pryor kind of would have been the other option, but for various reasons, me and Michael never really taken a liking to him. And so he was, he was left by the wayside for that reason more than anything. 
But uh, there, there haven't been many great wicketkeepers. When you compare to other countries, you know, world cricket last year, they had Australia, Adam Gilchrist, South Africa, Mark Boucher, India, Dhoni. In, England have been, over this over our living memory, since Stuart retired, have been lacking a bit there, haven't they? Why, why do you think that is? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I agree with you, actually. I think, historically, along with opening batting, wicketkeeping has been the one area where England have have kind of led the way. Um, if you think, obviously, going back to Alan Knott and Bob Taylor um, and, and many before them. And I, I don't know, I, I wrote down, you have Stuart in your team, Matt Pryor, I thought was a brilliant cricketer. Um, Geraint Jones was there around 2005 series. He's probably not, not quite as good a cricketer as Pryor and Stuart, but not to be underestimated. Johnny Bairstow, I mean, currently... Um, I think he's wicket-keeping. I don't buy the notion that Johnny Bairstow is not a very good wicket-keeper. Um, I think he's wicket-keeper. At the start, I think he was a bit scruffy, but he's, he's worked so hard at it in the last mm. couple of years. His wicket-keeping has actually been top-notch. And the reason he, he, he lost his place in the side was more because of his batting than his, his wicket-keeping, bizarrely. And then you've got a couple of keepers who really didn't play very much because of this constant battle between needing your wicketkeeper to score runs. So somebody like James Foster um, and Chris Reid, two wicketkeepers there, who on pure wicketkeeping would have been as good as anybody around the world, but didn't get in partly because of their batting. I mean, James Foster was a fantastic wicketkeeper. He really was. Mm. Um, so you kind of got lots of options. You could make the argument in a team with Cook, Trescothic, Vaughan, Peterson, Root, I know we haven't taught Ben Stokes yet, but in a team with all those players, do you need a wicketkeeper who can bat? Just go for your best wicketkeeper. And in that time, you'd, you'd make a strong case, I think, for James Foster. Yeah, um, we, and that's given, the way the discussion went, actually. We spoke about all these guys, Foster, Chris Reid, guys who'd only played a handful of tests. But I do think that's striking that there isn't a, a standout candidate in the same way that we're in a discussion of the best England player of the last 20 years, guys like Foster and Reid are coming up, who, okay, great, they're fantastic in county cricket, but they really didn't play many test matches at all. So it's interesting. It's never felt like it's been nailed down as a slot, like with the middle order, we've gone Peter and Reid. Other than when Pryor was doing it. Pryor yeah. is the exception to that. Pryor had nailed it down. And I think also a bit like that. Pryor was, 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 was a fantastic game. cricketer and part of that uh, England team that went to number one in the rankings, hmm. You know, that team did have a rise and fall and a fairly brutal fallout of which Matt Pryor was a little bit part of it because he fell out of KP and all kinds of things. But as that team was on the rise, Pryor was an absolutely fundamental part of that, was a very, very uh, pugnacious batsman, top class. Uh, wicketkeeping improved a little bit like Johnny. When he first came in, his wicketkeeping looked a little scruffy. And then, as they do, because... They do it day in, day out, and they work ferociously hard at it. Pryor became a, a top-class keeper as well. Uh, and Alec was a very underestimated keeper. And, you know, Alec's career was constantly one of where should where, where's his best position because he was so brilliant at the top of the order because he was such a brilliant wicketkeeper batsman as well. You were spoilt for choice with him, but it did mean that we never quite settled because in the 1990s we didn't have a Ben Stokes or an Andrew Flintoff, we didn't really have a top-class all-rounder. It meant that Stewie was sometimes seen in that role. 
um, which was probably detrimental to his career in some, in some respects. So then, if gone, if you had to pick Stuart or Pryor, which would you go for, as your or someone else as your wicketkeeper? Well, as, as somebody who played with Alec for uh, fifteen years, both at the top of the order in the team, I, I, I'm I'm biased in that respect. I'd, I'd go for Stewie. Um, I would have no problems with Matt Pryor being in that team. I thought he was a wonderful cricketer. Mm. Go on then, all, all rounder. We actually interestingly Stokes, so why he got picked is he was in the discussion for number five as well because he batted there so successfully of very late. And as we were discussing it, we realised there's, I don't think, particularly given last summer, you can almost have a best team of the last 20 years, England team, without Ben Stokes. And so he was kind of automatically selected at six without us really discussing him versus Flintoff or whether we could have both of them in the sides. And Flintoff really got shoved down into the bowler set selection. And we'll come to this in a sec, but controversially lost out to, to someone else. Uh, but... Ben Stokes, was, is he your kind of obvious pick at six as, as, an, all, as an all-rounder? Uh, he is. Uh, I think he's just a, an, an unbelievable cricketer. Um, and the, the figures don't necessarily reflect the value or the importance of Ben Stokes to, to the England team. Um, for all the reasons that, that we banged on about last summer, uh, you know, if you, if you want to win a game, who do you want there with ball in hand or bat in hand? You want Ben Stokes in the middle. So... I can't see that you can pick an England team of the last 20 years and not have him as the all-round. Mm. So on, on, to, on to bowlers. Uh, we, well, the spinner, we can probably skip over fairly quickly just because Swan, you know, the discussion for that, I'm surprised it went on for as long as it did, really. Moment <laughs> or Monty? Yeah, it was him. So him, him Giles, Monty... And I made a big push for Adil Rashid as well, just because I love Adil Rashid. But, but I mean, you could be having a laugh. Graham Swan, he's just been, he was just so, so fantastic for the time he, he, he did play for England. So I'd, I'd take it as, as red, really, that for you, Graham Swan would be your spinner. Yeah, I don't have any arguments. I, I could probably make a case for some of the others, but I, I think of uh, in the last 20 years, he's been the standout English spinner for sure. Yeah, Graham Swan. Great. Absolutely. So let's turn to Siemens, because this is where it gets controversial we had this is last week we discussed it who our three seamers going to be the rest of the team have been picked up to this point anderson and broad you feel get in because they've taken so many wickets anderson's just a wonderful bowler broad is as well and then those those match winning spells that he kind of pulls out of the bag normally once once a summer make him such a valuable player but then it really kicked off for the third seamer and michael's <laughs> selection of matthew hoggard I still haven't gotten over them. I've been getting messages all week from friends who listen, outraged that he's been selected. What do you make of that selection? And who, who might you have had instead as that third seamer with broad Can I just quickly make my case? Because it does seem a slightly rogue one. I'll make my case very quickly. Part of this, part of this um, team, Mike, we haven't mentioned this yet. A very small part of it is we both, me and Bob well, both like reading and we um, enjoy cricket autobiographies. And if someone's written a really good autobiography, that gives them a slight edge. And I absolutely love Matthew Orwell's book. But that's by the by. He's, he's, also, he's also got a wonderful, wonderfully strong record, both home and away. Maybe not wonderfully strong is the wrong way to put it, but he averages just over 30, both home and away. And I think he's so capable. He'll never let you down. And I also think he's very underrated. He got a lot of good batsmen out. I think 28% of his wickets were batsmen who averaged over 45. And I think that was basically the case I made. And somehow I managed to persuade our guest last week to agree with me. Well, he was, he was a good cricketer. Uh, underrated, uh, good swing bowler, workhorse, as you say. I think Michael Vaughan used to refer to him as the kind of 
the shop floor worker, didn't he, around around some of the other perhaps more glittering talents in that team. Um, and he's not going to let you down. But he wouldn't be in my team, I have to say. Um, if you're looking at if you're looking at that team, and you've got Broad and Anderson there, you've got Anderson who's a swing bowler, Broad who's a, a kind of line or seam bowler. What you want really as your as your next guy, your last guy, is somebody with a bit of pace, somebody with a bit of zing. And for all Matthew Hoggard's qualities, um, you know that's not where I'd be looking. So I had a short list of Harmison, Jones, Archer, or Flintoff uh, in that for that particular position. Obviously, if you pick Freddie, you're not going to bat him at 11, but he'd go up, you know, seven or eight or whatever. Um, but I'm looking for my last position to be a quick bowler, somebody to put the hurry up on the opposition because I don't want to be in a team where they've got quicker bowlers than ours. So, in the end, I would go for Jofra Archer. And oh, wow. Just because that's, uh, I know that there's no record there and I, I'm really uh, thinking ahead to what might come and all the potential there. And I think by the end of his career, he'll, he'll make a, uh, a demonstrable case for selection. But if you're not going to go for Jofra Archer, probably Steve Harmison, who's the number one ranked fast bowler uh, for that period around the, the middle of the, of, of the first uh, decade of the period we're talking about. Brilliant around 2004, 2005, uh, led the attack. Uh, and, you know, England haven't had that many really top-class fast bowlers down the year. Out-and-out fast bowlers, think of Tyson and Larwood and Willis. Um, but Harmison was certainly up there in, in terms of pure pace. Um, so he'd be my choice. Uh, Archer would be my choice, but if you're not going to accept him because he's played so little, probably Steve Harmison. Oh, why, oh, why weren't you our guest last week, Mike? I tell you, I was tearing my hair out. So he talks about, you know, all the, basically every player had taken a couple of hundred uh, test wickets from England, either in this period or coming out of the 90s, so Caddick and Goff, and then on to Hoggard, Harmison, Flintoff, as you say. Simon Jones got mentioned uh, as well. You mentioned Caddick and Goff there, and of course I didn't mention those, because I rather think of of those two as as 1990s players as well, in the same way that I think of Butch and Thorpey and Alec to some degree. They, I think of those bowlers as my generation rather than necessarily the one you're talking about. Um, yeah, of course. And that's probably one of the reasons why they, they, didn't, they didn't get picked. But Harmison was just kind of, I was, I was ready to pick him. He was kind of my pick going into it as the third seamer because, as he said, all those things, a faster bowler, fantastic mm. when he was at his peak, 2004, 2005. But it was just that kind of his, his, his average over all his away tests was into the 30s, possibly even well into the I think 40s, it was 40 something, yeah. 40 something, and sort of horror, horror memories of staying up past midnight for that first test of the two <laughs> seven ashes and watching something that I think I once did in an under 11s game and bowled to sort of second slip. It just, it kind of. Somehow I got persuaded not to go with him and we were left with Flintoff and Hoggard. And... You shot down Flintoff early, Rob. You shot yourself in the foot. You left yourself with very little room to go. And then suddenly Matthew Hoggard just came into the picture. Um, the thing so... is that people think of Freddie as an all-rounder, which of course he was. He was a wonderful all-round cricketer. But if you actually just put his batting to one side and looked at him as a fast bowler, that when he was at his peak, there weren't many better around. I mean, think of that over that he bowled to Ricky Ponting in that 
2005 mm. test match at Edgebast. And when he was at his peak, he was a really brilliant fast bowler. And I think sometimes he, you know, because of all the other qualities that, that he had as well, people just um, pigeonhole him as, as an all-rounder. But he, he'd make a very good case for getting in as a bowler. Anyway, I'm still going Jofra Archer, I think, in 10 yeah, years' okay. time. When, when you're doing this in 10 years' time and you look back, I think you'll think, why didn't we pick Jofra Archer? Yeah, fair sure. enough. Good to know. Um, just to quickly say now, the Zoom meeting will cut us off in a minute. Mike, we just want to ask you for basically your 12th man and your, who you'd have as your coach. Oh, 12th oh, man, Gary Pratt, especially if Ricky Ponting's in the opposition, you've got to have a good fielder. Um, so Pratt will do as 12th man. And uh, a coach, very quickly, the two best coaches in that period for England, I think, have been Andy Flower and Duncan Fletcher. Again, maybe the delicious, delicious possibility of, of reuniting Andy Flower and Kevin Peterson <laughs> might push me towards Andy Flower. Wonderful. Hey. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on. It's been very, very kind of you. Uh, and, well, enjoy the rest of lockdown. And we'll look forward to hearing you on the, the telly again. Will you be commentating for the West Indies test? Yep, July the 8th is going to be behind closed doors and therefore uh, going to be, you know, strange in all manner of ways. But at least we'll get some cricket. Uh, which is better than nothing. Well, thank you, Mike. All the best. Many thanks, Mike, and have a great weekend. Okay, good to talk. Cheers, Mike. Thank you.